Genesis 27 details the beginning of one of the most famous family feuds in all of history. Leading right up to the very birth of Christ and even a bit beyond that as I think you'll see tonight. But I want to begin tonight, before we get into Genesis, and and just go with me, it's going to be a few minutes before we even get back to Genesis, but we will. I want to take you on a little prophetic road trip. It's not like we haven't been talking about prophecy a lot lately. But I want you to see something regarding Jacob and Esau that stunned me, just kind of bowled me over this week. I I feel like this is important to share and, and take a good look at because the implications are stunning. Book of Malachi, chapter 1, in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Why does God hate Esau so much? With a hatred that goes beyond just a man, just a a carnal fleshly man. And we saw last week, he's a a tough guy. And he's about the things of the flesh. That's, That's his mindset. You'll see even more of that tonight. A little bit. Esau is just about carnality and the flesh. He is not a spiritual man. But that's not the problem. That's not why the Bible says God hated Esau. Because Jacob's not a lot better. Jacob does pursue spiritual things, but he pursues them by deceit and by conniving and by scheming. This is how Jacob works. But God loves Jacob and he hates Esau. And I, I just, I've been thinking about this. We've been looking at these two brothers and wondering, what is it? I understand, yes, that, that Jacob is the thread through which God ultimately will bring Jesus into the world and bless the whole world. I understand the importance of that. I understand even saying, I love Jacob, but I hate Esau. What is going on here with the father? Well, back in Genesis 27, listen closely to this. Genesis 27 and verse 38. Esau has just discovered that his brother had stolen the blessing. Made off with his blessing. It's his right as the firstborn. He's forgotten about the bowl of beans, apparently. And so now, he's losing his blessing. He's upset. He's angry. Verse 38, Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me. Even me also. Oh, my father. So Esau lifted up his voice, and he wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Now listen closely. Behold. Away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. You will break his yoke from your neck. You understand what a yoke is. It's what was used for oxen. A yoke that would strap. A big, big, basically a log of wood that went over the two necks of the oxen. It was designed to go over their shoulders and they would walk together. 
And he's saying you're under the yoke. You're going to be under the yoke of your brother, but you're going to break free from that, ultimately, eventually. When? When does Esau break the yoke of his brother Jacob? Now watch this and pay close attention here for the next few minutes. There's a historic and prophetic thread that runs through here, weaving its way through the question, weaving its way through Esau's history. As much as Jacob, prophetically, we know that his thread is going to land with Jesus, there's a thread of Esau that the Bible tells us very clearly, something I had never seen before. Now I want you to go to another Old Testament prophecy book, the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. Not an easy one to find, and it's very short. It's a one-chapter prophecy. What's interesting about Obadiah is it's the only book in the Bible, the only one where the entire prophecy is an indictment of a single people group. In every other book of prophecy, there are indictments of people groups, but they're different groups or, or a number of groups. Obadiah is all about one group of people, the Edomites. Now, you may recall, the Edomites get their name from Edom, which means red. Red, which was Esau's nickname because of the red lentil soup. So the Edomites are the people of Esau. And the book of Obadiah tells us something interesting here. Starting in the first verse, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock. By the way, the clefts of the rock. The Edomites lived in that place, that rock-walled city you may recall of or have heard about. If you study prophecy, Petra. That was home to the Edomites. Petra and the surrounding area. So you who live in the clefts of the rocks, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart... Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come, came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how will you be ruined? Well, thieves at night, robbers, what does that sound like? Who comes as a thief in the night? And, and what is that a reference to? It's a reference to Jesus coming in the rapture when the church is stolen out of the world comes to you, if thieves came to you at night, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined, would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. What did Edom do to deserve such an indictment? Such a negative prophecy. I mean, God is going off on Edom. And the entire prophecy of Obadiah is about Edom and the Edomites and how they are going to be taken down, laid waste, wiped out. We'll follow this historic prophetic thread. Esau is determined to destroy Jacob. We remember that from Genesis 27. When he finds out the blessing is gone, I am going to kill my brother. In fact, I'm just going to wait until my dad dies. He's close to death anyway. When he dies, Jacob's mine. I am going to kill him. Following that, the Edomites were determined to stand in the way of Israel, to fight against Israel. They hated Israel. The Amalekites, who are the Edomites, by the way, Amalek comes from the line of Edom. So the Amalekites are Edomites as well, and they were determined to destroy Israel. Another interesting biblical character. You get about to the book of Esther, and his name is Haman. 
and Haman was of Agag, who was son of Amalek, who was from Esau. Haman was an Edomite. Now Haman in the book of Esther, if you know that story, he was determined to destroy Israel. He, he went to the king and set up a decree saying, wipe out the Jews. And if Esther hadn't gone to the king, risking her life, the Jews might have been wiped out right then. There's something in Edom that is very anti-Israel, to the point of hatred, to the point of wanting to wipe them off the face of the earth. Then around 300 B.C., a people called the Nabataeans, the Nabataeans came into the area of Eden and they drove the Edomites out of Eden, away from Petra, away from the area in which they lived. They lived there in the southeast of Israel and they were actually driven toward Israel into Judea. They came to a place up over near Hebron where they were given sanctuary by the Israelites. The Edomites were actually allowed to come in and live there. The Israelites allowed that and the place was called Idumea or Idumea. You've heard of that in scripture. They became known then, these Edomites, as the Idumeans. Okay? Even so, their hatred for Israel still simmered under the surface. It was, it was bubbling. It was boiling. They hated Israel. They had sanctuary thanks to Israel, thanks to Judea. They were living there, but they still they hated them. And around 156 B.C., there was a great uprising by a group of brothers called the Maccabees. You may have heard of them. An uprising in Israel against the Syrians and against a king by the name of... And it, don't worry about writing all this down. Just You'll, you'll get it when we get to the end of it. But the, the Maccabee brothers went up against the Syrians and a king they had, a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, if you study the book of Daniel, you discover this guy was an early type of Antichrist. He set up a temple. In the temple, he set up a, an idol to himself. It, it may have been an idol of himself. It may also have been an idol to the god Jupiter. We're not sure. But he went into the temple. He spilled pig's blood and entrails and guts all over the temple, decimating it. And then he put the idol up there. And it was called the abomination of desolation. Now, Jesus refers to this in Matthew 24, saying that is going to happen again. A second time, an idol will be set up in the temple. One will come into the temple and declare himself as God. His name, well, we're not sure what his name is, but he is Antichrist. So Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of that, and there was a horrible slaughter. In fact, in one day, Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered 100,000 Jews. One day. It was awful, bloody. But the Maccabees revolted, and they ultimately succeeded in throwing out the Syrians, in, in winning their, their freedom again to a degree, but at that time, there was a man who was one of the sons of the Maccabees named John Hyrcanus. Now, John Hyrcanus came to the Idumeans, the Idumeans, okay, the Edomites, who were living in the land at the time. And he said, you have a choice. You can stay here and live among us, but you must convert to Judaism. All of your males must be circumcised. And you must become Jews if you're going to stay here. Otherwise, we will kill you all. So which do you decide? <laughs> So the Idumeans decided, well, we'll be Jews. And so they became Jews in name. They weren't by bloodline. They were just kind of, I don't know, godless, but a form of godliness. They were religious, but not really religious. Now, I'm telling you all this to say the Idumeans kind of took hold in that area. Known as Jewish people by outsiders, but they weren't truly Jewish. And through that line, ultimately, something interesting happened. Now, there's a lot of history here. But cutting to the chase, something happened politically. In Rome, a Caesar by the name of Julius 
Julius Caesar decreed, appointed a man named Antipater. He appointed him, an Idumean, the governor of Judea. Antipater was the father of Herod. Herod, the same King Herod, who slaughtered thousands upon thousands of Jewish babies. Boys under the age of two. Infants. It was a bloody massacre. You see how in the line of Edom all the way down, we keep seeing the Edomites wanting to wipe out the Jews. We keep seeing this, this thread of hatred hang on here. But there's more to it. God says, the Lord says, I have hated Esau. And, and he declares coming in the future a punishment, a judgment upon them. From the beginning, folks, there's a spirit at work in the Edomites. There is a spirit involved in the life of Edom. It's a spirit of Antichrist. A spirit that is anti-Christ. Anti-against Jesus. Against the Lord. Against His plan of salvation, which is through the Jews, which Jesus came from that line, against Christ. But listen to this. What happened to the Idumeans after Herod? Because he's the last Idumean who's actually mentioned in Scripture. He's the last one. So what happened to this people group later on? After the death and resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus ascended into heaven, about 35, 40 years later, A.D. 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. But here's a piece of the story you may not have heard before. When the Romans were coming down upon Jerusalem and about to wipe it out, as they came down, the Idumeans, about 20,000 strong, came to the city gate and said, Hey, look, let us in here, protect us with you, and we will fight alongside of you. The Israelites said, okay. They let them in, and once inside, the Idumeans betrayed the Israelites and began a massive slaughter. They turned against them and began fighting against them as Rome was coming on from the outside. The slaughter began before Rome actually broke the walls and came into the city. The Idumeans were doing it. They knew that Rome was going to win. They knew Rome was the powerhouse. And so they allied themselves quietly, secretly with Rome and went against the Jews and helped Rome in that awesome, massive slaughter. Well, after this time, the land was completely overrun, and the Idumeans regrouped, and they made their way to a safe place in a country today we know of as Italy, and they settled in a place called Rome. What are they doing in Rome? And what does this have to do with prophecy and end times? Folks, Daniel 9 tells us that the Antichrist will come, quote, from the people who destroy the city of Jerusalem. Well, that's the Romans, right? Yes, it's the Romans and the Idumeans. Antichrist will come from that line. Maybe, now, and, and I'm, don't quote me on this, I'm not talking in absolutes. I'm talking in very strong possibilities, Okay. It's entirely possible that Antichrist will be nationally a Roman while ethnically his line draws back to Esau. And I do man. I'm not saying for sure and I could be totally wrong and we'll find out eventually. So I'm, I don't care if I'm wrong about this but it's amazing to me. Now go back to the book of Obadiah. By the way, something interesting. Just put your finger there for a second. In the area of Rome today, there's a superpower growing. I've been studying this, just looking at it for our, our study on Sunday, and thinking about just kind of world events and, and prophecy and what's going on right now. America has no idea how powerful the European Union has become. 
The European Union is fast outpacing America as a very powerful place. They just added 10 more nations. They're up to, what is it, 24? 24 nations? Turkey wants to get in on that as well. That's an interesting turn of events. I'm not sure how that's going to work out. What is the deal with the European Union? Folks, the euro is outpacing the dollar. At least it's battling against it. There are those, in fact it was Vladimir Putin who wants to get the euro as the standard for oil as opposed to the American dollar. If that happens, the American dollar goes in the tank. Don't be surprised if it happens. The European Union is becoming very strong. Now that's all I'm going to, I'm going to say tonight because we're going to look a little more closely at the EU on Sunday. But that place is becoming a strong empire and Rome, Rome is once again rising. Europa rising. This is why God hates Esau. God hates the very spirit that is anti-Christ. He hates anything that would step in the way of his plan of salvation for all mankind. And Esau to Edom to the Idumeans all the way up to Rome. Folks, they are set against this group. This spirit is set against the Lord. It is Antichrist right down the line. Esau cries out, Don't I have a blessing? And Jacob prophesies, and listen again, keep your finger in Obadiah, and just listen to this, Genesis 27:40. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless, that you will break his yoke from your neck. Now, the translation is actually better here in the King James. Listen to this version. Genesis 27:40. And by thy sword shalt thou live, and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass when thou Thou shalt have the dominion that you will break his yoke from off thy neck. What? When you have dominion, when you have authority, power over Israel, you'll break Israel's yoke. And that word dominion is the right translation. It will come about, Esau, down the line, somewhere down the line, you, your people, Edom, will have dominion. And historically that's never happened. The Idumeans never had dominion over the Jews. But they will. Now listen to what happens here in Obadiah. Look at verse 15. And pay very close attention to the first five words of verse 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. Which day? The day of the Lord. When does that happen? What's the day of the Lord? According, according to prophecy, according to the book of Revelation, the day of the Lord is that day that we know of as the tribulation. The day of the Lord. And so Obadiah writes, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble. And they will set fire on them and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. Edom. This fiery judgment will happen on the people of Edom. Well, who are the people of Edom? It's the people who settled there in Rome. And it is out of this area, and we see the European Union rising very strong right now. And by the way, when we talk about these things, don't get confused. Don't look at the European Union as all people in Europe are evil. You know, whether or not you like the French, that's between you and them. 
But it's not all evil. It's the government. It's the power that, that rises up within. And it is the... what the, well, That Sunday. Come Sunday morning, we're going to talk about the EU. You'll understand this much better and you'll see what Daniel had to say about Rome rising again. Anyway, back to Genesis 27. Verse 41 Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill, I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau says, I will kill Israel. I'm going to destroy Israel. It's always been the spirit of Antichrist which desires to destroy, to murder, to wipe out Israel, and along with it, to wipe out the world's only hope of salvation who is Jesus. Once Jesus came and went, was crucified, resurrected, that, that ability to wipe out, to stop that plan ended. However, and some of you have heard me say this before, Satan continues to be anti-Semitic. Why? Because God has a ton of prophecies for Israel that he has to fulfill if God's going to keep his word. So Satan's plan now is if I can wipe out Israel, if I can destroy Israel, I can take away the ability of God to fulfill his prophecies and I can prove God wrong. Which is why anti-Semitism is yet again on the rise. It's amazing in the world to watch what's going on. Even after our, our recent memory of the Holocaust, the Jews are becoming once again the most maligned people in the world. Hated. Who can they hurt? Have you seen the size of Israel? Anyway, let me read one more thing to you out of 1 John. In fact... Sorry to make you flip back. Keep your finger in Genesis 27 and flip back to the, to the letter of 1 John. Three more quick uh, passages here and then we'll get back and get into our Genesis study. But regarding Antichrist here and, and this line that he, he may come from and what the Bible has to say about him, John had a few words to share, to say, to speak about Antichrist. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. 1 John 2.18 Children, John writes, it is the last hour. Well, you say, Rick, it's not the last hour. That was 2,000 years ago. It's a long hour. John made it very clear. Peter, Paul, all of the writers made it very clear that from the moment Jesus ascended and the church age began, we were in the last days. The last days began at that time. Now, why I keep saying or how I can say that we're closer to the end than, well, obviously we're closer than we've ever been before, but that I believe that these are the times, that's because of biblical prophecy and because of how we're seeing things happen in the world around us today. Again, that's for Sunday. But John says, these are, this is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. I would submit to you that Haman was Antichrist. That Herod was Antichrist. That Nero was Antichrist. Not the person of Antichrist, but the spirit of Antichrist absolutely at work in the world trying to destroy Israel. Subdued to a degree in the last 2,000 years. Subdued a bit. Held back by the power of the Holy Spirit in the world. But still, many Antichrists have come. And John says, from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. So that it would be shown that they are not of us. But you have the anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. 
and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That's, that's the bottom line, gang. For Christian belief, for salvation, is Jesus the Christ? Do you believe that? If someone denies that, John goes on to say they are Antichrist. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who also conf- or who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, so you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Flip over to chapter 4 and verse 2. 1 John 4, 2. John continues to write, By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. How do you test the spirits in the world? And maybe you haven't had experience with spirits. You know, I, I haven't had a whole lot. I haven't had them you know, coming in and talking to me. How do you test if something is of God or not? How do you test the spirits? Does the spirit claim Jesus as the Christ? If it does... If, if the person, if the pastor, if the teacher is claiming Jesus as the Christ, that's an indication that they are from God. John goes on, he says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. When Antichrist was already in the world, no, the spirit was. The spirit of Antichrist was already in the world at work doing antichrist-like things. Verse 4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who, that it, who is in the world. And those are great words of comfort today. Greater is he who is in you. Man, the more I listen to what's going on in the world stage, I have a briefing pack from Chuck Missler where he is going through and talking about 10 strategic trends in 2004 with prophetic relevance. And as I listen to this, I just shake my head. I came home today and I told Cheryl, if I didn't know that I had Jesus. If I didn't know that Jesus was coming and know that his plan was sovereign, I'd be scared to death. I would be absolutely frightened out of my mind to live in this world in these days. I really would. Things like oil production. Do you realize that that the world between 2004 and 2008, they have shown that oil production will peak, not for America, not just for the Middle East, for the entire world. And it will never be that strong. It will be downhill from there. We're not in good shape here. We can drill in in, in Alaska and get a little more oil, but they're saying all oil worldwide, we are using it up and using it up fast. Our resources are diminishing at an alarming rate. These are things we don't talk a lot about because they make us uncomfortable. And if you don't know where you're going with Jesus, if you just happen to be there you know, on, on the news sharing new stuff, you don't want to talk about those things because they, they can be really depressing. But the world's winding down based on all these different things. Well, sorry, I can go on and on. Second John chapter 1, verse 7, the last verse, and we'll get back to Genesis. Second John chapter 1, verse 7. John writes the following, and listen to this in terms of what we talked about from Esau to Edom and all the way down the line. Verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Why does God hate Esau? Because the line of Esau was anti-Christ. And I believe personally, personally, that Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, 
resided in that line and may yet arise out of that line again. Alright, Genesis chapter 27. Verse 42. Tuck those things away and here we go. Now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him. And then I will send and I will get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Folks, these days, these few days that he was supposed to go and stay with Laban turned into 20 years. And Rebecca, the manipulator, who loved Jacob, she was his favorite, he was her favorite son. Rebecca would never see him again. She wanted him to get the birthright, to, to be the firstborn, to, to take control of the family, because the family was not in good shape at this point, you'll see in a moment. And she was very upset, she was sad. Her life was not going well. The only bright spot in Rebecca's life at this point was Jacob. And so she doesn't want to lose her son. Flee to my brother Laban, get out of here, run. And be safe, stay there a few days and then come back. Twenty years later when Jacob finally does return, Rebecca has already died. She will never see her boy again after this. Folks, be careful when you try to force the good hand of the Lord. When you try to make things happen, when God says it's going to happen, when He pronounces in your life or shows you this is what's going to happen for you, don't try to force Him. Don't try to manipulate it your way. Listen to this. When, back when Rebecca met Isaac, you remember that? When Abraham sent his servant Eliezer to go get Rebecca and, and bring her back. And we said at the time, amazing pictures in that story. That Abraham was a picture of God the Father and, and Isaac a picture of Jesus. Who was Rebecca a picture of? The church. Rebecca was a picture of the church. Isaac being like Christ and Rebecca the bride, the bride of Christ. And so we see that then the servant goes and gets Rebecca, gets and brings her to the groom, bride and groom together. It's interesting to me that the church, folks, I think we need to take a lesson from Rebecca's life here. Because in the world in which we live, we even today see the church trying to manipulate things to make God's will happen. Now listen to me on this. I'm not saying back off in being politically aware and in being involved. I'm not saying that you stop working for the Lord. But what I am saying is this. God's will will be done. With or without us. And sometimes we work so hard to force God's will to make it happen. Whether it's in our own lives personally or in the church corporately. We get involved with things and we say, we're gonna, man, we're going to take back America for the Lord. I would love for us to take back America for the Lord. But folks, sometimes what we end up doing is working so hard to take back America that we drive away individual Americans who need the Lord. We become manipulators like Rebecca. Folks, we need to learn from this story. Instead of prying, maybe we ought to be praying. Maybe instead of interfering, we should be interceding. Instead of being on our feet, the place to be is on our knees. I heard a couple of internet quotes today and I just thought they were great. The shortest distance between a problem and a solution is the distance between your knees and the floor. What would happen in this country, in our lives, 
if instead of getting on the political bandwagon we got on our knees what would happen if the church truly started just to pray what will happen for the Bridge Christian Fellowship if we purpose ourselves to be people of prayer before we're people of action if we stop and say you know we don't know what we're going to do with the barn we don't know what the future holds right now we know there are some roadblocks down in Island County and we're not sure how that all is going to work out what do we do, what do we do, well let's get together and strategize and plan and scheme and manipulate why don't we pray why don't we give these things to the Lord the other one I really liked is the one who kneels to God can stand up to anything what do we have to be afraid of in this world folks we don't even have to worry about Antichrist because as far as scripture is concerned we won't even see him we're not even going to be here he is not my concern my concern is Jesus Christ focusing on him living for him telling people about him that's my concern not these other things the place where we do the greatest work of our lives is in prayer in prayer John chapter 6 verse 27 Jesus said don't work for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him the father God has set his seal and so the people heard this and they answered Jesus and they said well what shall we do so that we may work the works of God and Jesus answered and said to them this is the work of God you ready for this to believe in the one whom he sent that's it there's no church board meetings in that sentence there's no committees there's no action group just believing in him who he sent yeah well how do I show this belief in the one that God sent you take everything to him all things we offer it up to him we go to him in lives of prayer 1st Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 Paul wrote I urge that entreaties and prayers petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity what happens after the elections this year in America how will you respond whichever candidate that you're for and I have a guess as to who a lot of you are for probably the same person that a lot of me is for <laughs> but what happens if the person I'm for is not elected well I'm going to do everything I can to bring down the other guy that's what I'm going to do I'm going to form a coalition and really go after him we're going to show that he's a liar and a cheat wait a minute Paul said I want prayers and entreaties and petitions and thanksgivings for kings and all who are in authority regardless of who it is I think the church probably should have done a little more praying during the Clinton administration and I'm not saying that as an anti-Clinton remark as much as a what was the what was the church doing looking for everything we could to be mad at, at Bill Clinton instead of saying he's a sinner just like me he needed our prayers well, he still needs our prayers Paul goes on 1st Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men the man Jesus Christ why does Paul say that right there because he's talking about prayer there's one who has the power one who has the authority one who has the ability to work out his will in this world and it's not you and it's not me one God one mediator Jesus Christ 
who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Therefore, Paul says, 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, I want men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Because that gets you nowhere. Just pray. So Rebecca's life ends up sad and frustrated. She'll never see the son she loved again. And her other boy, Harry... Continued to cause frustration. Verse 46. Rebecca said to Isaac, I am tired of living. Any of you moms ever said that to your husbands? I am tired of living. Your son is out doing all kinds of things. She says, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. Remember, Heth means terror. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these, she's talking about the, daughter, the wives of Esau, he has two wives from the daughters of Heth, two wives of terror. <laughs> I don't think that sounds good. Like these, if, if Jacob takes wives from these daughters of Heth, these daughters of the land, what good will my life be? Now, Rebecca's still manipulating. She's not just worried about what kind of daughter-in-law she's going to have. She wants Jacob out of there. So she thinks in her mind, okay, I can go to Esau and say, I don't want him to have a wife from here. Send him to my brother's house to Laban to get a wife. That's her excuse for getting Jacob out of there. And Esau thinks that that's a good idea. By the way, this is why the Spirit tells us not to intermarry. And the Bible says very clearly intermarriage is wrong. Now, if you think I'm talking racially, I'm not. I'm not talking about ethnically. I'm talking spiritually. Spiritual intermarriage is a problem. As many of you may be aware from friends, family, when you see it happen, when you try to marry outside or away from someone who shares faith in Jesus, it will be disastrous. I've yet to see it work beautifully. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Now a lot of people will, will get into relationships and, and will marry saying, Well, I'll change him. I'll change her in our marriage. And the reality is, if you can't change them before you get married, you're not going to change them afterwards. Marrying outside a shared faith in Jesus is a guaranteed headache, which is why faith in Jesus, for any of you who are single, should be at the tip-top of your list. That's the number one thing. You look for that first, before anything else. I don't care how cute he is or how good-looking she is, put that down lower because that's going to go too. <laughs> I'm not saying that personally here. I happen to be... Well, no, I'm not going to embarrass you. We'll just go on. Just moving on. Now, <laughs> Genesis 28. Now, I, let me give you a quick outline for the next eight chapters. We're not going to do all eight of them tonight. But here's the outline. Four things. Number one, we're going to look at the saving of Jacob. The saving of Jacob, chapter 28. Secondly, the subduing of Jacob. Chapters 29 through 32. Thirdly, the separating of Jacob, chapters 33 through 34. And finally, the sanctifying of Jacob, chapter 35. Again, the saving of Jacob, chapter 28. The subduing of Jacob, chapters 29 through 32. The separating of Jacob, chapter 33 through 34. And finally, the sanctifying of Jacob, chapter 35. 
It's interesting that Isaac was such a blip on the screen. I mean, really, we spent so much time with Abraham. Wow, Abraham, father of the faithful. And we watched him grow in his faith. And then Isaac comes along and it's like, boom, now we're on to Jacob. Jacob's the issue. Jacob's the main deal. Why? Wasn't Isaac's life full? And and aren't there interesting stories there? I'm sure there are. But the reality is now God wants us to focus in on a people. The people of Israel. And we begin that real foundation of the people of Israel coming right out of the line of Jacob. Yeah, Abraham is considered father of Israel, but it really begins with Jacob. So for the rest of our time tonight, the saving of Jacob. Verse 1 of chapter 28. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paddan Aram. To the house of Bethuel, your, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you may become a company of peoples. May he also, and now Isaac is going to expand on the earlier blessing he had already given Jacob when he thought he was Esau. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, so that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. So now Isaac passes on the land blessing as well. This land, Jacob, is your land. It's so funny, they argue over the West Bank. The West Bank of what? West Bank of the Jordan River. Well, the true West Bank that belongs to Israel would be the West Bank of the Euphrates River. It's quite a bit more land than just out to Jordan. Israel's going to own that someday. We shall see. Well, Isaac now gets it. In these first four verses, he understands, he sees that Jacob is supposed to be the inheritor of the land. He has figured it out. It's all clicked in. And so he blesses Jacob further. And we see the importance of this land, which is not just any land, but it's the promised land given to all the descendants of Abraham forever. Verse 5. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Now Esau saw that Isaac... Now, watch Esau here. I almost feel sorry for him, because he's just kind of a poor, dumb hunter. You know, not that all hunters are dumb. I'm not saying that because my father-in-law happens to love to hunt. I would never dare say, especially with his wife here, that he's dumb. But this guy, this outdoorsman, this earthy guy, is kind of lame. He's just not a real... He's a little slow on the uptake. Watch what he does. He saw that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padamaram to take himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padam Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael. And married, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Do you know what Esau's doing? Oh, okay. Let's see now. A married couple of the daughters of Heth. They were cute. I thought they'd be great to have around the house. My parents obviously don't like that. What do I do? What do I do? And here goes Esau, thinking in the flesh, thinking carnally. All right, got to please Dad. Got to please Dad. Got to do something he'll like. Hey, I know. He wants it to stay in the family. I'll go to Ishmael. Isaac's half-brother. Well, that was stupid. What are you thinking, Esau? I'll please him that way. I'll go get another wife, a third wife now. And it'll all work out. It'll all be great. He's still thinking in the flesh. He's thinking if I do the right thing here, if I do some nice works, I can make my dad happy. Jesus said, what must we do 
to do the works of God? Just believe in the one in whom he sent. Believe. So we get back to Jacob in verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went down toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head. I love the symbolism here. Put some rocks under his head and he lay down in that place. And the Bible tells us, well, hang on. How many people use rocks for a pillow? I'm looking for a place to rest my head at night. I'm, I'm on the run. My brother's out to kill me. So I'm out in the desert land. It's barren. There's nothing there. And I lay down to go to sleep and I look around. I need something for my head. Rocks. That's perfect. I'll put some rocks under my head. This is great. Folks, there, there's a quote that says, A clear conscience makes for a soft pillow. And Jacob's pillow was anything but soft. He was lying his head on a pillow of rocks. And he's running for his life. And his conscience is not clean. But you know what's really cool in this scene, in this story? God loves him anyway. He's lying there, guilty as the day is long, having deceived and run away. And God comes to him in a dream. And it's awesome. Verse 12. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder... A ladder was set on the earth with its, with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Notice the order here, by the way. The angels are ascending and descending. Wouldn't you think it would be the other way around? Wouldn't you think there's a ladder and it's put up and the angels are now coming out of heaven and going back up. But what he sees is angels are going up and coming back down. What's the point? The point is, there are be angels down here. Angels are among us. Angels exist and reside and move among us on planet Earth. And folks, there are angels here tonight. I know that for a fact. There's one sitting right over there. Nobody looked, okay. <laughs> I know there are angels among us. You know what? The church doesn't, isn't as aware of angels now as they were in the first century. When they knew that they were... It, well, a couple of things. Acts chapter 12 tells us a very interesting story. Peter's thrown into prison. And the church is praying. And they're praying really hard. I'm going to flip there. You've got to hear something. I'll just read it to you. And Peter's in prison. And as the church is praying, an angel shows up. And brings Peter out of the prison. And he's kind of in a dreamlike state. He's not sure about what's going on. But leads him through the streets of Jerusalem. And finally stops. And Peter comes to himself and goes, I'm out of prison. Alright. So he heads to the place where this Bible study, this prayer meeting is happening. And when he gets there, he knocks on the door. You may remember the story. Rhoda, the servant girl, runs to the door and she looks. And she sees Peter and she slams the door and runs back in. She doesn't bring him in. She's just so freaked out. Hey, it's Peter! Slam! Goes back in. Sits down with the people at the Bible study and says, Peter's at the door. And what do they say? Listen to this. You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Oh, did they think Peter was a spirit? No, that's not what it's saying. It's his angel at the door. His guardian. The angel that watches over Peter. That's who that is. And what does the church do about it? Do they ask the angel in for tea? They just say, Rhoda, knock it off. If there's anything out there, it's just Peter's angel. That's a little aware. 
You ever had a knock on the door and say, well, I'll get it later. It's the angels. You know, they keep bugging us. You know, they, I don't know, kind of sell something. I don't know what it is. His angel, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they'd opened the door, they saw him. And they were amazed. These people were very aware of angels. It, it, there's more than that. They assumed Peter's angel, his guardian, was actually there. But Paul would later write a couple of other things. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent out specifically, this is what the verse says, to serve those who will inherit salvation. So once you are covered by the blood of Jesus, once it is known that you're inheriting salvation, guess what? You've got angels watching over you. Something else that's interesting to me is children. Children specifically have angels assigned to them. I'll show you that verse in just a second. But I want to show you something else. Flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll get back to Jacob's dream. This has just recently been discussed in our ladies' Bible study and to the consternation and dismay of many. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. I just need to read this to you and ask you for a moment. Not to think about who lords it over who or who's in charge or who has the authority, but just read what the Bible says and listen closely to this. It's important and it has to do with the angels. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. The imitators of me, Paul says, just also as I am of Christ. Don't imitate me otherwise. Imitate me as I am like Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything. And you hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. The church just doesn't want to read that chapter. Because it's a little uncomfortable and it sounds archaic. Read on. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Now, one thing I do need to point out to you here. Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the assembled worship of the church. He's talking about order. He's talking about the appropriate way to go about things. And he does mention that in the assembly... Women are praying and prophesying. They are involved. Okay, there, there is more than just men standing up here. Read on. Verse 5. Where are you going with that, Rick? Nowhere. I just wanted you to know that. But every woman who has her head unco- uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Verse 6. But if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. Paul's getting sarcastic here. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, how, how does a woman cover her head when she prays? There are a couple of ways. One is by a head covering. The other one is just by having long hair. Paul will sh- share that in a moment. Verse 7. What does this have to do with angels? We're getting there. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. I know that's hard to hear for some ladies. It would be if I was some ladies, but the woman is the glory of man. That's talking about the reflection. Man reflects the glory of God. Woman is a reflection. So men, if you're, if you're married and your wife is a big problem, it's, she's just reflecting of you. Okay. Verse 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Oh, it just gets worse. Verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What? 
What does that have to do with anything? Well, read on a little further. However, this is where we men need to pay attention. In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. What are you saying, Paul? Judge for yourselves. It is, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practices, nor have the churches of God. Paul's saying this is the way it is. Like it or not, this is the way it is. What is he talking about, and why, does the, why do the angels have anything to do with this at all? The woman must have a sign of authority on her head. And when the man prays, he must pray in an appropriate way too. Why? Because of the angels. What do the angels have to do with this? Apparently, the angels are extremely sensitive to things being out of order. The angels don't like when things are all wild and and flying and, and no sense of direction. What's going on down there? They're out of control. Because of the angels... There needs to be a sense of order in the worship. I don't know about that. I mean, what's the big deal? Think about it. What did the angels experience? They saw the woman left alone in the garden deceived by Satan. They saw a third of their brothers, their kind, fall from heaven in the rebellion of Satan. They watched as some of those rebellious ones did not even keep their proper abode and are now chained up in the pit, Jude, chapter, Jude verse 6 tells us. The angels have to fight these principalities who were created for a place and a purpose, who were given specific roles. They were supposed to be glorifying God, but they rebelled. And now the angels who are surrounding God and who are on the ladder and who are on earth with us us at this time now have to fight these other principalities, these other angels, because these other angels left their place. They got out of order. And Paul says, because of the angels... You guys need to have some order in what you're doing. They're sensitive to this. They understand their place. Do they have a right to be sensitive? Oh, I think so. Yes, there are angels. Yes, they are present among us. Yes, they are aware and watching. And one thing they're watching is you and me. I think angels are trying to figure out this whole grace thing. They don't get it. You're going to say that? You know, watching, Paul says the angels are studying us, studying these, looking at, trying to figure it out. They're watching the plan of God going, wow, that guy too, and her, and him. You notice I'm not pointing at any of you, (laughs) or me. The angels are going, I get it. Michael, come here. You see what he just did? God forgave them. I don't get it. They're studying, they're watching, they're aware. And they know God has an awesome, sovereign plan. But let me give you one warning about angels real quickly before we move on. They understand their place. You need to understand their place as well. They are not holier than thou. They are not higher or better or greater than you are. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 19.10, we're told that John, seeing this whole revelation, he's got this angel guide with him, and the angel tells him some things, and John's so amazed, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. Don't you worship me. The angel's own words, I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. The angels are our fellow servants. 
Don't ever get into angel worship because they aren't in that place and they would reject that themselves. And the angel said the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Angels are ministering spirits. And I said before, especially where our kids are involved, check this out. Matthew 18 verse 10. Jesus said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. These little ones, the children, their angels are before God. Their angels assigned to them. And that's a great deal of comfort for any parent. Okay, back to the dream. Back to the dream. Verse 12 of chapter 28 of Genesis. Verse 12. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its, with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, there were angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Now he is telling him. God himself is telling Jacob the land covenant, the promise. Your descendants, verse 14, will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Four quick things that God offers Jacob here in this covenant. Number one, he offers presence. His presence. He says, Jacob, I'm with you. I'm here, in this place. I am with you. His presence. Number two, his protection. I'm with you, but I will keep you, Jacob. Number three, he offers Jacob preservation. I'll bring you back to this land. Your people will be away from this land for a time, but I'm going to bring you back. And number four, his promise. Presence, protection, preservation, and promise. God says, I will do for you what I have promised. What did he promise? Well, he promised Abraham that all the families of the world would be blessed by him. He promised Abraham this land would belong to Israel. He promised Abraham that his seed would be like the dust of the earth. I promise, God says. Now watch as the saving, the salvation, literally of Jacob unfolds before us. In the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Jesus gives us clear insight into this dream. It's an interesting story. I'll just begin reading John 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an, in, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And I love what Nathanael says, How do you know me? <laughs> Jesus pays him a compliment and goes, yeah, that's me. How do you know that? How do you know I'm guileless and without deceit? And he goes on, he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel is blown away. He just says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That was easy. You will see greater things than these. And listen, verse 51, here's the commentary on Jacob's dream. Truly I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on what? 
on the Son of Man. Jesus tells us that the ladder was a picture of Him. That the ladder, the connection point between the heavens and the earth is Jesus. He is the bridge that spans the sin of man. He is the the way to the Father. He connects us to God. He will bring us to God. And in this moment, what Jacob is seeing is a way to get to God. And that way is Jesus. He spans the distance. Jacob's dream is all about Christ. It's all about the way to the Father. It's all about salvation. Now back to Genesis 28.16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. He was afraid and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. God is here, he says, present tense. And I didn't know it. Past tense. Last night when I laid down to sleep, I had no idea God was here. But now as I wake from this dream, I realize God is here. Listen folks, God is in the rocky places. He is in the barren lands. God's here when I'm a scoundrel. He's here when I'm a man on the run. He's here when my life doesn't make sense to me and I'm running trying to figure the whole thing out. And salvation happens right there in the dry rocky places, not up at the temple. Well, salvation can happen at the temple and it can happen in church. But more often than not, that moment of salvation occurs when we are in the rough spots. So... Let me say to you, those of you who have friends and family you're praying about, you're worrying about, and they are in the rough spots right now, that's where God met Jacob. That's where Jacob got saved. And that is where salvation tends to happen. When we're lying down and all we have are rocks for pillows. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Why can't anything separate us from that? Well, the last verse of Romans 8 is answered by the first verse of Romans 8 which is, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, once you're in Christ, the condemnation is gone. There's no separation because there's no condemnation. I can't be pulled away from, taken from, separated from Christ because I am not condemned any longer. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jacob realizes God is in this place, not was, but is at that moment in this place. Verse 18. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar... The pillow becomes a pillar. And he poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. You're going to hear of Bethel many, many times in the scripture. But it used to be called Luz. Luz means separation. But Bethel means house of God. And in the saving of Jacob, we get such a wonderful picture of what happens to us. We were separated from God. And in that place of separation, where we laid our heads on the rocks of our mistakes and sins and failures and horrible acts and deeds in this life, in that place of separation, God came to us. The ladder was let down in heaven, the ladder which is Jesus Christ. And connected us with the Father and did more than that, folks, brought us into the house of God. Beth El. 
the house of God, the place where God resides. Now, we're going to end with this. Three very quick characteristics of the convert. Three things that you see in Jacob that you see in people who have become followers of Jesus. They've accepted God. They have salvation. Here they are. Number one, salvation leads to worship. Salvation leads to worship. Again, verse 18. Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone, the rocks that he had used as a pillow, and set it up as a pillar. Turned it into an altar. Suddenly now Jacob is worshiping. That's what people who are saved want to do. I love that in new Christians. They cannot wait for worship. They don't even really want the Bible study as much. Just give me worship. You know, I just want to bask in the worship. And you can tell someone who has been saved because they just want to worship. It's the first thing Jacob wants to do after this dream. Man, i got to worship. And he's worshiping in awe. And he's worshiping in thanksgiving. He has moved out of separation and into the house of God. Number two, salvation leads to works. Salvation leads to works. Notice the order there. Works don't lead to salvation. Salvation leads to works. I do the things that I do for God, want to do, desire to do those things, not because they may save me, but because I have been saved. Salvation leads to works. James 2.26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now here in verse 22, watch this. Jacob says, This stone... Actually, let me read back in 21. He says, I return to my father's house in safety. If I do all... No, back in 20. Then Jacob made a vow... He made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear. And by the way, this is not a bargain. He's just laying out his response to God's grace. He says, if I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Back in chapter 27, verse 20, Jacob said, the Lord your God, talking to Isaac. But now he says, the Lord will be my God. Jacob's getting saved, folks. Verse 22 says, This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. I will give you a tithe. Salvation leads to works. Jacob, like Zacchaeus, wants to do something. He says, Lord, everything you give me from here on out, of everything, I'll give you of the first 10%. I will, I will tithe. Interesting to me, this is another Old Testament example of tithing before the law was given. Abraham did it to Melchizedek. And now Jacob says, Father, I'm going to, just as an act of worship, as an act of love, as a response, he says, I am going to give you 10% of everything you give me. And by the way, that is a great way to live as a sojourner. Because every time you do that, every time the first 10% of anything that comes into your household goes back to the Lord, you're worshiping and you're reminding yourself constantly... It's not mine anyway. This is all of the blessing of the hand of God. He's the one giving it. So Jacob decides to tithe. Salvation leads to works. It's not legalism, folks. It's just life. Jacob's alive. He's excited. He's happy. He wants to, he wants to follow the Lord. When the dead body comes back to life, the faith wants to work out. It wants to act. It wants to do. And giving the first 10% is a privilege to return back to the Father. By the way, God does promise, the Bible promises a blessing to those who trust in this way. You may have heard this back to Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. God says, hey, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me in this. Try it out. 
I know you're all freaked out. You're looking at the budget. You're reading it down and saying there's no way we could give 10%, the first 10% that comes in. Maybe after all the bills are paid, if there's something left over, we can give that. And God says, test me. Give it a shot. Do you believe me or not? Try it out. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And I can talk about this because I don't know what anybody here gives. And because this has been an amazingly generous group of people, such a blessing. This isn't a tithing lesson, but it is to say, and listen folks, God says, let me bless you. Allow me to bless you. Trust me in this. Test me. Try it out. See if I won't give you a blessing that just overflows. And I don't know, but to me it sounds kind of fun. Try it out. But it's a risk. I may not be able to pay your bills. You may not. But don't you think the Lord knows what your bills are? Don't you think the Lord knows what your needs are? Seek first the kingdom. And all these other things will be added to you. Well, finally, number three. We'll end on this. Salvation leads to a wonderful walk. A wonderful walk. Look at verse 1 of chapter 29 and we'll stop. Then Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the sons of the east. Now I love this. When you, when you have the time to just sit down and pick apart words and find out what's really being said, it makes the Bible just come alive in ways that you, you could miss. Jacob went. That word went literally is lifted up his feet. I mean, he's got happy feet. He's happy. He's a, this is not the drudgery. This is not Jacob departing and coming into Beersheba and going to Haran and laying his head down on rocks for pillows. And man, he's just tired and he's worn and he's despairing. This is Jacob saved. Man, he's lifting up his feet. He's on the go. He's taken off. He has a new walk. He's got happy feet. He gets up the next morning, lifts his feet on his journey. He's skipping along. Much different than the disastrous journey before. Jacob is now a man who is saved. Lord. I didn't know you were here then, but I know you're here now, and I want to work for you, and I want to worship you, and I want to walk with you, and my hope is that it, may it be that our worship and our works and our walks would lead others to the great salvation and awareness of God's presence that we ourselves know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jacob's story and and the things that we see. Thank you for showing us, Lord, that it is truly by grace we are saved. As we look at Jacob, the conniver, the schemer, the man who is desperate, and find him changed in this amazing dream where you come to him and reveal that there is a way to you. God, I'm so blessed by that. I'm so thankful that I get to read and see and understand this. For Father, as Jesus told us, Jesus is the ladder. The ladder that we ascend to be a part of your household. The ladder that we didn't put up, but the ladder that was let down to cross and span this chasm between us. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, may we this week have the strength, the courage, the enthusiasm to walk like Jacob was walking. Lift up our feet, Father. And may our feet bring the good news of Jesus Christ to other people in our lives this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.